Well, uh, we've got a big section of Philippians today. Um, but I want to start off in just saying I really, really, really love you guys. Um, it's true. Thanks. <laughs> Zinger. Jonathan with the church jokes. Love it. So last week, uh, Bishop Matt talked about koinonia and what true community looks like, and I have experienced that again in spades this week with you guys. Uh, I woke up Friday morning with some fairly intense chest pain, uh, so I went and got breakfast tacos, as one does, uh, to dismiss it. I uh, didn't drink two cups of coffee because I thought maybe that was not the smartest thing when you have chest pain, so I just had the one cup. Um, and then I, uh, I went to a, uh, a place to work on uh, a wedding message that I had uh, the delight of officiating um, a wedding for Lucy's daughter, Sarah, and her husband, Ryan, this weekend in Dripping Springs. And as I was working on the wedding message, um, getting everything right, the pain is increasing. Um, again, I tried to dismiss it. Then it's turning time for me to start driving to Dripping Springs. Um, I didn't leave Austin in time because it's a terrible place as it relates to traffic. But on the way, uh, the pain is radiating up here, going up the left side of my neck into the back of my shoulder, which I'm thinking, you know, it's not best case. Um, so I call Michael Brimer, say, Brimer, I need you to pray over me. And he goes, great, I've got Balfour here on speaker. What's going on? So I tell them what's going on. They have this great prayer over me. I felt better for like 10 seconds uh, after we hung up, and then the pain is just getting worse. And as I'm on uh, 281, no, 290, um, I have this thought of like, I'd love it if I could just test my troponin level right now to know if I'm in cardiac arrest or not. Um, but as it turns out, the traffic is not good, and I need to be here for this wedding that I'm not going to miss. Uh, and then I'm like praying myself away from that, those thoughts. Um, but I also did have the thought of, you know, you always did want to die either in the ocean or in the pulpit. So, you know, this could be your shot, bud. And you're going to be with a lot of your people, so this is good. Um, long story short, uh, I get to the wedding. Marcus asks me how I'm doing. I actually tell him. He stops and prays over me. Um, Bishop Sandy does the same thing, and then somehow the Lord keeps me upright during the ceremony. It was pretty intense, like pain that was like drawing my body forward. Um, and the ceremony's over, and then um, I get prayed over by grace people. Um, the Rogers, the Archers, the West, the Elzingas, the Greens. They all pray over me, and I get home Friday night. Um, Sandy rode in my truck with me, which was smart. Thank you. Just in case the thing happened and, you know, that whole deal. Um, I assumed when I woke up yesterday morning that all was going to be well because of these prayers, the things declared over me, the fact that the enemy doesn't have my time clock, the Lord does, et cetera, et cetera, right? All the stuff that you're praying when you're thinking maybe you're going to have a heart attack that day. Well, I wake up, and it's not better, so I call Elizabeth Honeycutt. I explain to her what's going on, to which she replies, great, I'll be there in 10 minutes so you and Katie can go to the ER, which you never want to hear from Elizabeth Honeycutt, by the way. <laughs> she tells you to go to the hospital, not good, okay? So we show up at the ER, 
Uh, and worry is starting to set in. Um, I've been here before, you know, 56 weeks ago, um, same hospital. And as they're taking all the blood draws and doing all the things, um, I look over at Katie and I say, babe, this is kind of nice. Like, Saturday brunch date? We haven't had one of these in six or seven years. Uh, I don't think she thought it was as humorous as I did. (laughs) But I tell that story because it illustrates two things from Philippians chapter one for me. Number one, you guys are my koinonia. You pray, you take care of my kids so I can go to the hospital, you have brought us meals, you do life with us, you're partners in gospel ministry in this community, and it's such a joy to to journey with you guys. Number two, uh, my circumstances this weekend weren't great. And I don't always do this, uh, but my joke to Katie was was sincere. Um, I didn't want to let the situation I was in in the ER, uh, knowing that probably in about 20 minutes I was going to get the report back that my troponin was way up and I was in cardiac arrest again. I didn't want that to dictate this time that I had with my bride. Um, like I wanted to be fully present just in case, right? And again, I don't always do that. I can let circumstances just kind of run, rattle around in my head. But I wanted to be fully present and focus on the positives. And this morning, Paul says a similar thing in our text. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. Though he's surrounded by pretty terrible circumstances, he stays joyful. And I think here's the main thing for us this morning, is that he sees possibilities for the good news to move forward. So Paul is surrounded by these pretty terrible circumstances, but he sees the possibility for gospel ministry to happen. Okay, chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul is eager for them to hear what's going on in his life. They are his koinonia. This isn't just like a casual friendship, but this deep, abiding relationship founded in Christ and his mission. Well, what are his current circumstances? Um, He's currently imprisoned in the Praetorian Guard. Um, Emperor Augustus founded this group BC 27, it's about 10,000 of the absolute best soldiers in his army. These soldiers are ones that get paid better than all the others. They have a really good retirement plan. They are his go-to trained killers, okay? These are, this is the Delta Force, the Navy SEALs, and the Secret Service all rolled into one. This is who Paul is imprisoned by, okay? He's not just like in prison. He's like chained to Delta Force Danny over here, okay? So for four hours, him and Delta Force Danny walk around chained. Then SEAL Team Sammy comes up four hours later, unlocks Delta Force Danny so Sammy can be locked to him. I can't come up with any other names off the spot for Secret Service, but... The point is, every four hours, he has a new six-foot-four yoked train killer chained to him. 
Pretty intimidating, right? So he's not just in prison. He's chained to these elite soldiers. And what's interesting here, he doesn't really talk about it, does he? He doesn't go into his circumstances. He doesn't give us the backstory. And here it is. He's been falsely accused. He's been stripped, beaten. He's faced an assassination plot. He's been shipwrecked on his way to Rome. And now he's in prison, chained to elite killers. Paul only says, my circumstances. My circumstances. He focuses on the positive. He sets his mind on things above. He's truly living in the moment, and I think what's important for us is that he's able to see past what most of us would see, that he's locked up with a train killer. What is Paul's MO? He is an apostle. He carries the message of the gospel forward. He cannot go to a synagogue or to a town square and preach the gospel. He cannot do what he's been called to do. Why? Because he's trained to six different elite soldiers each day. What he doesn't say is this. Well, I can't do any ministry at the moment. I'll, I'll just wait until I'm released. Paul is making the most of one of the worst situations he's ever been in, and he doesn't allow discouragement to rob him of the opportunity that's there to share the gospel. What I want us to hear this morning is that ministry is wherever we are. Ministry happens wherever we go because we are the church. Verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. What we are chained to, which may be a better way for us to hear that, is what our limitations are. The new project at work the Little League season that just won't end, come on. Like seriously, why is that thing like 18 months long? The savings account that just isn't growing, the neighbor that annoys you at night, the person at work that makes fun of you for not engaging in office politics or passing along that sordid image. Whatever the chains are, if we're hearing Paul correctly this morning, these limitations are actually God's opportunity for us to leverage for the kingdom. You see that? Like they're actually opportunities if we can see them. Um, each one of us has limitations that we let get in the way. Paul doesn't, it seems. Or he's learned how to not let them get in the way. Maybe that's a better way of saying it this morning. Paul can't control his circumstances, and he's not trying to. He's just attentive to the opportunities around him. And for us, every single place that we go, we're on mission. This is part of our identity statement, to live on mission. That's the end of our identity statement here at Grace. Uh, I know someone who does this on walks in Terrell Heights. She meets her neighbors on walks. She invites them to life group. She feeds them. They get saved. It's amazing. We, I go on walks too. Well, I try to run, but I don't. Let's be honest. I, I kind of gallop a little bit. <laughs> trot, trot, if you will. Uh, I know someone who does prayer walks every morning for an hour and prays for his neighbors. 
that they might come to know who Christ is. I know a bunch of us that open our homes on the weekends, and we host themed dinners and barbecues, and we bring our friends that aren't churched yet to come over so that they can hear and see the goodness of God, right? Because everything that we do, we can be on mission. Um, Everywhere that we go, so goes ministry. And uh, one of my favorite preachers says it this way, the everyday mundane things is where God shows up. If we have eyes to see it, right? If we have eyes to see it. Uh, Mount Calvary Lutheran, they've got these signs, like when you're leaving the parking lot, and it says, the mission field starts here. The mission field starts here. So as they're leaving their parking lot onto Chevy Chase, that's where the mission field starts, which I think is right. Verse 14. And that most of the brothers, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. What's interesting here is it's not just Paul who's benefiting from this heavenly perspective. But we see others are encouraged in their faith because of Paul's example and his suffering or his circumstances. Uh, there's a story of a Chinese Christian who was sentenced to uh, prison for 18 years. And upon his release, um, he, he was at a conference telling a story. And he relays the story of how in prison he'd been given the job of working in the latrine. So his... Uh, his reward for preaching Christ crucified was that he's in a Chinese labor camp for 18 years and he is on latrine duty and it's not just cleaning the bathrooms with disinfectant Um, he's literally inside of a cesspool with a shovel and he is shoveling out the other prisoners stuff if you will Because of the smell, the other prisoners and guards kept pretty far from him, as you'd imagine. Pastor Chang said in this uh, talk that he enjoyed the solitude. I could pray to our Lord as loud as I needed and loudly recite the scriptures and the psalms and loudly sing also the hymns. He said that he had wonderful fellowship together with our Lord. None other has known such joy. The cesspool became my private garden. Isn't that amazing? You definitely want to talk to him in heaven. Do you think the folks at that conference were encouraged in their faith when they heard his story? Right? It's, it's his testimony of how he communed with the Lord in the midst of some pretty difficult circumstances that is giving me pause this morning. It's giving me perspective. Here in the West, our fears are unpopularity and social isolation, but many, many of our brothers and sisters around the world are facing beatings, imprisonment, and death for their faith. And the question I have for us is, what have we to fear, church? What do we have to fear? Wherever we are, there's gospel possibility. At HEB, Gold's Gym, on your walks, the nail salon, Alma Heights pool, mission field like crazy, if you've ever been there. And I want to read uh, 12 through 14 again for us, just so that you hear it. 
Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul's circumstances are an opportunity to joyfully be on mission. You hear that? His circumstances, his imprisonment, are an opportunity for joy to be on mission. Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So he's not letting his circumstances steal his joy or his being on mission. And here he's not letting his critics. Uh, we don't know exactly what these folks were saying or doing. Um, it's hard to imagine that someone would preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in order to hurt Paul. And I, we couldn't come up with what that meant. But in my years in youth ministry, I've, I've seen some of this happen. I've seen these silos uh, where many of my friends in young life have felt the sting of this. They've felt rivalry and tribalism towards them from youth pastors in their area where they live, like insecurity uh, over numbers, wanting to be the biggest and best in town. Whatever it was, it's, it's happened to some of my dear friends who are area directors in Young Life where the youth pastors in their cities there's competition, there's rivalry, and when kids start coming to club instead of to their youth group, they get really hurt and insecure. And, and, and so what I'm saying is this still happens. I doubt that's what was happening with Paul, but just, just so you all know, this is a big reason why we love Young Life and partner with Young Life here at Grace is there is no tribalism. There is no rivalry. We preach Christ crucified, right? So again, not, not a one-to-one here, but Paul doesn't say, gosh, if these others would stop being so self-focused and stop causing me trouble, then I could be who I am. Then I could lean into my calling as an apostle and minister of the gospel. He just says the important thing is that Christ is preached. He's focused on opportunity, not his circumstances or his critics. Continuing on in 18, yes, and I will continue to rejoice For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be extended in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, maybe one of the most uh, important, well-known verses of Paul. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I think maybe the world's viewpoint is something like this. To live is popularity, 
To die is to be unknown, not famous. To live is to have possessions. To die is to be in poverty. To live is to be in a place of power. To die would be to be disenfranchised or weak. To live is to pursue pleasure. To die is to experience pain. Paul's viewpoint is that to live as Christ means to serve others, to be generous, to esteem others better than ourselves. And I love the message version, uh, just backing up from 21. It says, everything happening to me in this jail only serves to make Christ more accurately known. Regardless of whether I live or die, they didn't shut me up. They actually gave me a pulpit. Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his bounty. Life versus even more life. I cannot lose. Isn't that good? Life versus even more life. I cannot lose. So we see that Paul is pursuing opportunity in the midst of critics and in the midst of some pretty terrible circumstances. And now we see some, some crisis. Verse 22, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor, labor for me. He's speaking of his impending uh, murder, by the way. He's going to be murdered. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And we've got such a big section of uh, the text here that we, we don't have time to really go into it, but... Uh, what we see is that Paul is focused on opportunity. He's not focused on his circumstances, verses 12 through 14. He's not focused on his critics, 15 through 18. Nor is he focused on this crisis that is impending for him, verses 19 through 26. And he ends this section here. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. For this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And as we are closing, one, uh, one commentator said it like this, it's not enough to speak the gospel, we must also live it. It's not enough to just speak the gospel, but we must also live it. And conduct here in 27 means to live as citizens. So what he's saying to these Philippians who are... Uh, pretty keen to what citizenship means, uh, being Roman citizens, and all the benefits that come with that, that they must live a life worthy of a citizen of heaven. What he's saying to us is that we, as the people of God, must live lives worthy of being citizens of heaven. What is that? What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Like, think in your mind's eye 
what is heaven like? Maybe you've had a dream or a vision. Maybe you've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia and you find yourself like your heart just wants to go there, further up, farther in. Maybe you imagine the disease that you've been battling being completely gone. Right? Like, like we can imagine heaven because we're citizens of heaven. I think what Paul is saying here is imagine and then live it out until you get there. A citizen of heaven lives a life that's marked by freedom, by love, by joy. I mean, Paul's killing it, right? Like, he's chained and he's full of joy. Did you hear how many times he said, I'm overjoyed, I'm joyful, I'm experiencing this joy? That's the book. It's it's why Matt put a sea-do on one of the graphics. Like, when you're on a sea-do, you're just happy, right? It's just impossible to frown on a sea-do. There is joy in the book of Philippians. Somehow, someway, Paul is not rich, he's not free, yet he's got joy. As we go to the table this morning, I want us to remember that our circumstances, our critics, and our crises don't have to dictate how we live or what our attitudes are. Christ has purchased that freedom for us. But if you're like me, um, you hear Paul's example, um, being chained in prison. Uh, he's got this great attitude, by the way, like amazing. I'm having a hard time keeping a good attitude through dinner with my kids because they're throwing forks at each other, right? So I'm not exactly leaning into the joy of the Lord in my daily life. And so if you're like me, you're reading this and you're like, well, it's because Paul was an apostle, you know, he's got that special bat phone thing to God, that whole deal. So if I was you and I was hearing this sermon, I'd be like, all right, man, a, that's a lot. That's a lot. You're telling me to, to be joyful being chained. Uh, you're also telling me about this dude that was like in a cesspool for 18 years who just can't stop singing Hillsong. Anybody struggling with that one? I hear that and I'm like, oh my goodness, you gotta be kidding me. Like, Lord, don't, don't put me there. I, I don't know that my heart is attuned to you in that way. So if you're feeling any kind of weight or not shame, because that's not from the Lord, but a feeling of like, woe is me, I'm undone, I think that's the point. You can't do it. I can't do it. I can't respond in joy when I think I'm about to have a heart attack. The point is that the Holy Spirit has to do it. The Holy Spirit living in and through us is the one that's doing this for Paul. It's the same spirit that's doing it for Pastor Chang while he's doing this, while he's singing hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord in the absolute worst situation. I, can't, I literally can't imagine a worse spot to be. Yet they had joy. They experienced the presence of God in a really beautiful way. 
And then there's us, right? Like, we're not going to be locked up, more than likely, unless you do something stupid. Don't do that. More than likely, you'll never clean a latrine. You'll not suffer imprisonment. You won't be uh, put on the chopping block for your faith. But what does it mean for us in San Antonio, Texas, to have joy in the midst of circumstances, to have joy in the midst of critics that seek to harm us, to have joy in the midst of impending crisis, whatever that means for you? This is what I love about our rhythm of going to Holy Communion each week. Every single week, we're reminded that we don't come in strength or merit or our own righteousness. It's only by Christ, by his sacrifice for us, that we can approach God. And we come like this, right? We come and we receive his gift. We receive his gift. I certainly don't come here with my A&M or seminary degree or my title as a reverend now, right? I come because Christ died. He was buried. He rose again. That's it. His righteousness, his merit, his grace. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can be his witnesses, that we can respond in joy to our circumstances, our critics, and our crises in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So this morning as we come, let's come in humility and accept his power through us. Amen? Father, you are good. You love us. You have abundantly provided for us. Lord, even in our darkest moments when we feel like we're grasping for you and and you don't seem to be found, there you are. So Lord, whatever the circumstances are, whether we're battling physical ailments or critics, financial woes, whatever the things are, Lord, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to respond in a manner worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven? God, we cannot do this apart from you, and that's the point. It's always been the point. We come in weakness, and you provide strength. We come as beggars, and you fill us abundantly so that we might bless others. And Lord, this morning we come in humility knowing that your mercy and your grace is available to all of us by the cross, by your resurrection. So come, Holy Spirit. Fill us with your life and your light this morning as we come to the table. Celebrate our Lord. Amen.